Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast. Shambles producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of our regular Sunday Q&A show hosted live at 3pm British summertime and eventually 3pm GMT by Robin Ince and Helen Chersky with two guests each week where we take your questions, audience questions, and put them to experts. You can follow us on at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter to find out who the guests are each week and submit questions or email them to stay at home at cosmicshambles.com and we will get through as many questions as we can each week. So if you want to tune in at that time, you can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles and watch the show live each week. So it is worth mentioning that since these shows are originally uh, a video format, a live video format, there might be a couple of bits like the show and tell at the top of the show that don't work as well in an audio podcast format, but the Q&A section and all that will be perfectly fine for you here on the podcast. Since this is a live show recorded live uh, with everyone's varying levels of broadband speed, microphones and everything else Obviously, do keep in mind that there might be the occasional tech glitch, little dropout, little tiny bit of echo or something on these Q&A episodes. Such is the nature of everything in 2020. But we hope you enjoy the show. If you'd like to support what we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network, obviously, uh, we're unable to get out and do our live shows at the moment, so we really rely on your support through Patreon, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles, where you can go to subscribe and you'll get lots of extra bits and pieces as well for your subscription, as well as the nice warm feeling of supporting all of the podcasts and live streams and blogs and documentaries that we are continuing to make during this lockdown, quarantine, COVID period. Anyway, on to the episode. Here's Robin. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. That was a particularly ebullient uh, hello to wake you up uh, to whatever kind of torpor or stupor you're in in this uh, final day of what we would consider to be autumnal summer. This is uh, the week that the in the most inhospitable planet, it turns, is uh, packed with uh, uh, an alien civilization. Well, actually, I mean, in some ways I've exaggerated there. There's a hint of the possibility of life which may not entirely be fulfilled. That's not as good, though, as saying the alien invasion from Venus is imminent. So <laughs> that's the angle we're going to go for. Uh, today, is a, a, we've got a lot of chemistry. This is one of the reasons we thought this is uh, one of the... It, it's a lovely thing when uh, a moment of, of kind of a, a cosmological revelation is directly connected to um, chemistry. So we're going to be talking a lot about chemistry this week. I'll tell you a couple of things just in case you've uh, you've not watched before. Um, we've now done hundreds and hundreds of hours of, uh, of programmes. I mean, we did that before lockdown, but... In, in particular since lockdown we've been producing hundreds of hours of stuff and uh, we try and make sure like this as much of it as possible is free to live stream and that you can kind of uh, connect with us in as many ways as possible so if you are able to support us via patreon that is fantastic it really does make a difference because for a lot of us who are involved in in cosmic shambles well there's basically three of us who are who are predominantly involved in it uh we don't have any work anymore it's great it really is uh i the all of the live tours that i've been going on they they don't exist um so if you're able to support that just means that we then now have a bit of financial backing to keep making as many things as possible if you're not able to regularly support uh don't forget there's a tip jar down at the bottom of the page or somewhere around the page that you're looking at and uh, if you can put something in that today if you're able to that's fantastic if you are able to do neither of those things please continue to enjoy watching everything that we're making we try and make sure as i said before it's accessible to as many people as possible um questions today if you want to ask them uh in live chat uh you can just go to the live chat pop your question there uh our producer trent will send them on to me or you can tweet at cosmic shambles uh, so just at cosmic shambles and uh, we'll also find the questions there uh i should also mention that uh because it's the the big week of the phosphine week 
um, that we also did a, a conversation, or I did a conversation with Chris Lintot uh, earlier this week, and that is still up online. So if you want to see Chris Lintot explaining uh, uh, the day after the announcement of those, uh, it's, I, th- I think it's, I think it is enough actually that, that what's happened to say that it is a revelation. Uh, he kind of ran through a lot of the different things that we, uh, the possible changes in understanding, and indeed how uh, the discovery of phosphine was made, and that that was a great conversation. And there was a certain amount of serendipity in the uh how those those discoveries were made it was basically that there were uh in, in a drawer it was a day where someone just looked in their drawer and thought you know what i haven't properly looked through these for ages let's have a little look and uh while looking through uh old pieces of uh of, of recordings documentation they went oh hang on a minute i wonder if that's phosphine and that links to the other person this week uh we have one of our first um science book shambles for a while going out and it is with the uh, nobel prize winning uh scientist paul nurse who similarly with serendipity uh he was just mucking around in the lab and he threw his what he'd done that day away in the bin and he thought oh well there's nothing really to be found out there about uh, cellular division or replication and um then after he finished his tea he went Do you know what i'm just going to cycle back to the lab and just check in that bin because maybe there was something and uh, it turned out that really what he found in the bin was uh well a major part of the journey that led to him winning the nobel prize so what i'm saying is you know always do double check your bin before you throw things out uh also i'll tell you that nine lessons uh and our kind of compendium of reason shows uh, nine lessons which we normally do at king's place compendium of reason at hammersmith apollo um we're gonna have some news about that very very soon i think it's probably going to be announced uh next week obviously we're in strange times and we're going to make sure that something happens and we will tell you more about that uh later on and also we've got live genetic shambles at 8 30 p.m on wednesday and that's going to be another covid19 q a so if you have questions and we can we'll do them quite broadly this time as well i think we're going to do quite a long session on covid19 because as you know from things like the protests going on in trafalgar square yesterday which were a very confused mix of people with a lot of different kind of agendas going on and there are all manner i've certainly found today on social media different theories and different conspiracies and so some of them have points i think which are relevant and interesting about the nature of the way the government is dealing with it some of them i think are uh tremendously problematic positions to take because if you are worried that uh the government is going to use a pandemic crisis to bring in increasingly draconian measures then ignoring all of the better health advice that you can get to try and curb the increase in a pandemic is not not going to be helpful because the more people who get coronavirus if you if you uh, think that this is going to lead to uh, uh, measures coming in which you see as being uh, broadly fascistic then also saying and I'm not going to wear a mask and I'm not going to wash my hands I'm going to hug and kiss as many people as possible will ultimately be counterproductive for your aims um, so there we are welcome to the show that was a lengthy introduction I hope I've covered a lot of ground there in fact that could be enough for today thanks for listening goodbye <laughs> let's um uh, as usual we uh, I'm, I'm so pleased we we, we uh, have uh, two people who both of whom I've seen at the uh, the Royal institution doing wonderful things one of whom uh, nearly killed us all uh, with uh, ether uh, some time ago uh, who's professor Andreas seller who we're going to be meeting in a moment and uh, the other is professor Saifel Islam who we're going to be uh, also meeting you a moment, but first, our regular uh, co-host, who is Helen Chersky. Helen, you telling me that you're, today your show-and-tell is uh, particularly shambolic. There's a lot of entropy involved. I honestly, I'm regressing this already. So um, I'm trying, I try to find a show-and-tell which is relevant to the theme. And so I thought about pigments and colour and... So I've got ochre and I'm going to tell you about it a bit before I show it to you, because once I start showing it to you, the mess will be everywhere. I will tell you that for the first time with the show and tell, my desk is covered with the only piece of plastic I could find in my flat. There is paper where I'm trying to cover everything up. And then I realised I was wearing a white top, which is a terrible idea. See, this is great, though, isn't it? Because, as you know, this is, I can't remember if you were there. The One night. of the great traditions uh, with Andrea is that uh, it is always, there's a terrible mess that, oh, I'm sorry, the mercury went everywhere. Oh, I wasn't expecting <laughs> that to explode. When we did King's Place in December, everything was going to be wheeled on and everything was prepared. And just as that was about to happen, I can't remember whether it was liquid nitrogen or whatever, it was certainly something that was toxic, should you fall on it, uh, suddenly fell off the trolley. And it so was generally. Acid. It was acid of some sort because it melted someone's shoes. That's right. Everyone went, why are my shoes so sticky and why are they so much smaller than they used to be? <laughs> anyway, so anyway, the, so that the, 
So I'm trying to, I'm, I don't want to follow, I haven't got Andrea's experience at full expertise, so this isn't going to explode. So this, uh, here we go. So this is ochre. And there's, the reason I'm showing it actually is not, so the thing itself, so this, you will know, you'll have heard of ochre because it's one of the um, very famous early pigments. If I, well, I can sort of draw on, draw on, this is a sort of reddish, it draws very easily. Um, so it, oh my God, it's like looking at the caves of Lascaux. This is fantastic. I, <laughs> um, I'm going to put that, I'm going to stick this on the fridge now. So uh, the point about this is not only is it a very strong pigment, but actually, um, and it's, it's very messy and gets everywhere. So this is from Clearwell Caves in the UK. And it actually came in lots, so that if you wander around the caves, it's a, an iron-based um, uh, material, or that's what's at the part of its colour. The chemists can explain all this. But here are some other bits that were nearby. And you can see there's actually quite a range of colours. This one's got all this lovely texture on it. It's all got these little tubes, which is quite cool. Um, but the point about it is that the, and the chemists will, I'm sure, pick me up on the details, but fundamentally, it's all iron in here, but it's got lots of different colours because there's different uh, particle sizes, there's different levels of water involved, there's slight different, um, you know, uh, arrangements of the atoms in there. But the atoms inside all these three things are quite similar. And and so these, because it's a sort look at this already, it's everywhere. <laughs> um, it's, I'm going to start. I, I can't touch anything for the rest of the day now. It's like glitter. You know, I know it's going to be everywhere. Um, does it was it Andrea will know what it tastes like as well if I accidentally eat it anyway the point of this is that a lot of the variety paprika. Of those, paprika. <laughs> that is the voice of experience I'll, I'll leave that experience to you the point of all of this is that um, it was a very easy if you lived in the right place and you could find a mine and pick it up and you could be a much better artist than me at the case of Lascaux um you oh look it's falling everywhere now um you got a huge range of colors out of actually very sim similar chemistry and so i just picked this uh as a as an example of the broad range of colors because it only takes little changes in the structure to give different colors if you have the right transition metals uh, and all the chemists can tell you why that is but yeah so i just brought this along because it was um i I thought I thought it was time it had an outing and it is really cool stuff it's just that those every time you see a cave painting now what you have to imagine is the artist walking out of the cave afterwards and their friends or family looking at them you know just like oh like I once did a flower I had a flower demonstration that used to blow up a lot got flower all over me and I used to walk out and people would go oh I genuinely thought you were a ghost hmm. so I want you to imagine the cave you know cave people paleolithic people walking out of the cave and their relatives going oh you've been drawing again don't touch that <laughs> that's great that's lovely yeah. they probably weren't see, wearing white t-shirts see, see so far, i've got to what, ask what you is, you mentioned tasting like paprika uh, chemistry wise th chemistry there is wise, a line to be drawn somewhere which seems to be quite blurry on checking the taste of something uh can i ask you what in terms of your greatest regret in terms of just going but well, i just do wonder what is this going to taste like I, I i think this this element or this compound is reasonably safe to place in my mouth mouth I think during my degree days, there was a, a kind of white ceramic solid. You thought it looked fairly benign. And I think it was a, a spinel or, or a mineral. And I did, you know, just like you think, is it going to be like sort of an illegal drug? You kind of put it to your tongue and it was it was disgusting. You had to spit it out straight away. I can't remember the, um, the exact compound, but that was my regrets and I, I've never put anything to my mouth again which I'm not sure about this is a very wide science Q&A it's also a lot of it's about philosophy ethics you know good reason <laughs> morality colouring yeah. chemistry yeah see I love I've always been told you know that in, in the movies with the drug cops they always go yeah yeah that's heroin I've been told that actually that's that's not apparently yeah, exactly. an effective test that exactly. if you're, if you're, if you're de dealing I, with it on a taste I think that's probably where my role model came from that kind of image I thought that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. And it, yes, do not do that. Do not try that at home. Yeah. But that's, See, I mean, that, that's amazing because there's that thing. So I can't touch my face. Yes. No, this do touch your face. It's going to make oh, it funnier and yes. funnier. Oh, poor, just do that. This is what we need. All that your face in public. Just put ochre on everyone's fingers before they go anywhere. It'll totally solve the problem. I've forgotten what I was going to say now. Um, yeah. No, I have forgotten what I was going to say. Carry on. I'll remember. Well, I, I, I think anyway, you, I'd like to get to do an episode if they ever bring back You Bet, in which uh, various different, uh, blindfolded, merely by taste, you will go across the entire periodic table. Well, <laughs> until obviously you die. Um, so from, oh, I've remembered what, what it was. I've remembered oh, my on, thing. Then. It's not very interesting. 
But you know that thing where hair, as you growing it, it, it reflects the chemicals in you. So if you do take drugs, they, they sort of grow out in your hair a little bit and stress hormones and things. I love someone should test the chemist's hair, right, to see what they've been trying along the way. You're muted, Andrew. Well, a couple, a couple of years ago, um, I made a documentary for Radio 4 and the World Service. About mercury. And I was interviewing a, um, a, a, an expert on mercury and health. And at the end of the interview, I said to him, you know, actually, over the years, I've, I've had mercury around. I've given lectures about mercury. And, and sometimes I worry a little bit about, you know, whether I've actually acquired a fair amount of mercury, given my eccentricities and so on. And he said to me, you know, oh, look, you know what you have to do? Just, just do me a favor. Um, cut a little piece of your hair and put it in an envelope and send it to me here in Denmark. And I said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And he said, oh, and by the way, why don't you uh, get a colleague of yours to act as a control? Um, and he said, find a colleague who, is, who eats a lot of fish. I thought, what? Um, okay, I thought about it for a moment. And then I thought, you know what? My colleague, Beppe Battaglia, he's the guy. He's Sicilian, and I'm sure he eats a lot of tuna fish. So <laughs> I went up to, uh, to see him, and I got a little bit of his hair. We sent both, both lots off, and about three weeks later, the reply came back. The analysis came back. And it turned out that my mercury was kind of nowhere. So clearly, my problems arise from something different other than mercury. On the other hand, Beppe's were four times mine. And in fact, exceeded the, uh, the, the National Institutes of Health warning level. Um, and that's simply because of its fish eating. And so, you know, absolutely, you know, your diet will end up reflecting, you know, or rather your hair will, will end up reflecting your diet. And so if you do, in fact, uh, snort a lot of mercury recreationally, <laughs> tuna for that matter, um, then, then we'll know. The, uh, of course, there's far less both of you and I to be able to reflect our diet now, unfortunately. We become far more enigmatic with age in terms of our culinary treats. Um, Seyfel, what's your show and tell? What oh, my show today? and tell. Well, well, first of all, I have to thank, thank you, Robin and Helen and Trent behind the scenes for this kind invitation. Uh, invitation. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be on the first time. Um, I have to say, talking to Andrea, I, I did a few butterflies before I came on. It felt like coming on to a for a PhD viral or an oral exam. <laughs> I wasn't sure about the exam. Anyway, my show and tell is this. Uh, it's, and I'll explain this model. Uh, there's three kind of very brief reasons. Uh, my research is all about crystalline solids. And probably the greatest example of a, a domestic crystalline solid is salt. You know, the stuff that you sprinkle on your chips, on your pasta, in my case, before a, a tequila shot. Uh, actually, that's not true. It's usually before two or three tequila shots. Uh, um, so that is an atomic model. That's what it looks like in the atomic scale, that sort. Um, the second reason is to do with the research I do with these solids. I, I'm a chemist that doesn't wear a white lab coat. I do computer modeling. So I try and simulate these. So in fact, when I go to parties, that's when I get invited, that is. Somehow, have you found that the invitations dry up when they find out you're a professor in chemistry or a scientist? <laughs> anyway, when I, when I do get invited to parties and people ask me, Cypher, what do you do? I say, I model. Uh, but obviously, I don't model down the catwalk. I use very powerful supercomputers. So th the reason I use supercomputers to look at this is the third main reason for the show and tell is probably... One of the biggest challenges of our lifetime is um, low carbon energy. And crystalline solids of this type are important in developing new materials for lithium batteries, but also for solar cells. And I use computer modeling to try and understand these crystalline materials at the atomic level. So that's my show and tell. Um, I should say I prepared that earlier. Yes. That's fantastic. This is. Can I just ask you, just because I was interviewing Paul Nurse the other day in his, his life, and of course one of the big problems is defining what life is, and there, there is a point where crystals come into play, where people go, well, hang on a minute, this behaviour, this is shared. But so, so for you, what is the cutoff point between uh, what we see in terms of crystals and what we would then define as being life? Oh, God, that's a very, that's a, a large, well, well, if you look at a lot of the, um, so if I go back a step, 
So in terms of crystal structures of biomolecules, I think someone did an analysis that it's one of the highest, if not the highest, awards of Nobel Prizes. Uh, one of our greatest um, scientists, Dorothy Hodgkin, uh, Nobel Prize for vitamin B12 and others, crystal structures. Um, so to answer your question, Robert, that's quite, a, that's quite a difficult one to answer. Where do you, so a lot of, a lot of life, if you talk about, if you wanted to get the, the molecular structure of, say, DNA, the molecule of life, you can get the crystal structure. And, and Rosalind Franklin obviously did the famous photograph 51, uh, get the X-ray diffraction pattern. And from that, um, you've got Watson and Crick working out the structure was a double helix. Uh, I think it's not a, a black and white. I don't think it's a, there's a continuum. Uh, so there is inorganic crystals that I look at. So these are inorganic, lifeless. There's no life here. But there are similar crystal structures that you would say are biological. And um, I'm sure Andrea has some views as well on that. Well, I think my, my only view is that this is increasingly like a PhD viva. Uh, <laughs> your tormentor, the, the, the external examiner, right, who's just asked a completely impossible question. But that's what I, I, I wanted to just say it was still an impossible oh, question. Oh, well, there isn't. Oh, go on then. Sorry, sorry. I mean, I, I think my only my only comment would be that um, one of the one of the things about about life that we know is that life, in a sense, emerges from chemistry. And although we sometimes think of DNA as being the molecule of life, one of the things to remember is that all of the structures of biology that we see around us, whether it be membranes, whether it be the folding of proteins, whether it be uh, you know, the way in which the proteins actually sit in membranes and, and stuff moves through them. You know, all of those are really the consequences of the, the simple rules of chemistry. And what you start to find is that the further away you go from equilibrium, and of course, when we're in school, we always think about equilibrium as being that kind of central place that everything comes to a halt and, and ends up there. If you're far away from equilibrium, then all sorts of very, very strange things start to happen. And it becomes possible now to um, start, for example, self-replicating or to, um, you know, to be able to shuffle things across membranes, those kinds of things to, to, to build in movement. And so I think in a sense, the question of what is living and what is not turns out to be not something which has this binary distinction that we've always imagined, is that actually there's a kind of, of weird gray scale along the way, in fact, a multicolored scale, right, where, where you go from things which are, you know, a crystal of sodium chloride, which is, you know, undeniably inanimate in one sense, to slowly, slowly the idea that crystalline materials might start to template certain things, certain other kinds of chemical processes. And as you go further along that continuum, eventually you get to this whole highly organized self-replicating thing that we, we think of as being life. And, and really you're down you know, to thinking about COVID. Of course, you know, are viruses actually alive or not? Right. They are these beautifully organized chemical structures, which once they get injected into a mm -hmm. cell are able to hijack the whole process. Right. And then generate more copies of themselves. Are they alive? Or are they dead? Well, they're somewhere on that continuum. That would be my my kind of take on that. There's and, also and another to get rid of tormentor. <laughs> There's a step on though, which is I think that one of the ways that humans find out about things like viruses increasingly is trying, increasingly is trying to turn them into structures when they're not. So for example, um the diamond light source, you know, they do they basically it's it's a very advanced version of the X-ray crystallography that Dorothy yeah. Hodgkin used. But it only works if you can make the little if say you've got a little virus like this, yeah, if you yeah. can make it line up in a regular structure. And actually the, there's two hard bits to the process, and one of them is interpreting the patterns that come back but the other one is just making this thing which as Andrea says is really complicated this little vesicle of something just sit in a regular way so you can get the um get the light to do what it needs to do and so they can do that with the fact that you can image a virus so they, they're, they're getting so good at this kind of spectroscopy now that they can build 3d model like they can actually 
effectively see all the atoms in a structure and for a vac for a virus that's really useful because it means you might be able to look at that and say oh well if we tweak that one yeah. we might be able to inactivate it and turn it into a vaccine instead of a virus so actually there is this additional thing which is that humans are trying to force in some cases live you know living but you can debate viruses thing but you know these complicated Okay, structures into a, a what is effectively a crystal, a regular structure, just so that we can see them, which is an interesting idea. Yep, yep. Mm. You're right. Mm. You're right. I'm turning oh. this more and more into a virus. So now, uh, Andrea, <laughs> though, I'm going to hand it over to you, and uh, you have a show and tell, with okay. an illustrated show and tell, I believe. Yeah. So, when, so when I was asked for a show and tell, I was thinking, oh my God, I really can't sort of destroy something at home. Um, in fact, the last time I, I I did, I destroyed a laptop. And so, you know, it's best if what I do is I show you something. But um, something something happened in the last sort of week, 10 days, um, which seems kind of appropriate. And that's the this discovery of phosphine on, on Venus. And lots of people have been asking me questions about phosphine. And by it turns out that an astrochemist friend of mine asked me about a year and a half ago whether um, I could make him some phosphine and also some deuterated phosphine. So... Um, what I thought I'd do is actually take you through and show you how we would actually make it in the lab. And for me, it's a kind of rare opportunity to show you that, that actually doing chemistry is, it, you know, can be unbelievably technical, right? But at the same time, when you do it, one of the wonderful things is that all of the physical laws that you learn in school and so to play. So, um, uh, Trent, if you, could, if you could just put up the, the first slide... I can't actually see the slides at the moment, um, so I'm not quite sure what's going to what's going to happen. But the first slide should on the right hand side um, a little picture of phosphine, and phosphine is PH3. It's like ammonia in a sense, and so it's phosphorus with three hydrogens attached to it. And at room temperature, it's a gas. Okay, um, and that's kind of a problem because it means you've got to have a clever way to uh, to handle it. Um, so. One of the questions is, could you condense it? And it turns out its boiling temperature is about minus 70 degrees, and you can actually freeze it at minus 133. So actually make this stuff in the lab. And so here is the, uh, the, the, the method that we actually use. What you do is you take a compound called zinc phosphide, which is a kind of black blackish semiconductor you can make by taking zinc and phosphorus, but in fact, we buy it. And then what you do is you react it with hydrochloric acid. And when you do that, the, the phosphine kind of bubbles out and you get zinc chloride as well. But the phosphine being a gas bubbles out of it. Now, how do you actually handle that, that gas? So I think on the next slide, you'll see um, a, a fairly complicated piece of apparatus, okay? And you'll notice that I've used ochre to actually illustrate the, uh, the diagram. Um, so this was scrawled using ochre and a trackpad. And um, so, so it's, I, I, I don't have a pointer, so I'm going to have to kind of take you through. Um, horizontally across there is what's called a dual manifold, and that's two kind of pipes of glass which have stopcocks in them. And those stopcocks are made of Teflon. They're called Young's Taps. They were invented in Acton in West London by a brilliant glassblower. Um, and, and a lot of us use those because they're, 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 they're just wonderful. They require no grease, very little maintenance, and so on. And what we're really doing is we're adapting methods that were first developed in the early 20th century by a man called Alfred Stuck um, to handle very air-sensitive uh, gaseous materials. Now, he was working on, on, on hydrides of boron and silicon, and he developed all these methods. And the idea is really that what you're going to do is you're going to take the gas and then you're going to freeze it somewhere. And then once you've frozen it, you can kind of distill it. You can boil it again and, and you can essentially move it from one flask to another. So one of the things you'll have are dewers, right? So vacuum flasks, thermos flasks. You're going to need a vacuum pump, which will actually um, allow you to have the vacuum so that the molecules will kind of move freely inside. You need a pressure gauge. That's absolutely critical. Those are your eyes so that you can actually see how much gas is where. And then you need to protect your, your, your pump with a liquid nitrogen trap. Okay, so on to the next slide. And there's, this slide is called setting up the reaction. 
And you, you can see that down at the bottom, there's a flask and there's some black stuff at the bottom, which is the zinc phosphide. And those flasks are really important because it has a sidearm on the side. And that sidearm is really crucial. It has a stopcock. And so you can control whether it's under vacuum or under atmosphere through that, through that tap. And then on top of it, we have hydrochloric acid, which we can drip in. And the whole thing is going to be under vacuum when we do the actual reaction. Let's go to the next slide. We now connect that flask onto our, um, onto our vacuum manifold. And we do that with yellow hoses. So that's the slide which says using a vacuum line, we put our zinc phosphide flask into some ice just so that the reaction will go gently, won't get too hot. On the other hand, on the other side, just to the right of it, there is a second flask of uh, an, an evacuated, an empty ampoule, an empty sort of flask, which is sitting in liquid nitrogen. And, and, and in the liquid nitrogen, that means that we'll be able to condense the gas there. So now what we do is with everything under vacuum and we've checked it with a gauge, we've made sure that there are no leaks and so on, we very, very gently dribble in the hydrochloric acid. And the hydrochloric acid causes everything to fizz. So adding the acid is the next slide, Trent. And you can see that it's foaming up above the thing. And so you kind of stir it and shake it and you watch it. You're watching the gauge, seeing what the pressure's like. And if we go to the next slide, you can now see the path that the, that the gas is going to take. And so you can see that it's going to run along the hoses up to the manifold and then all the way back down into the flask on the right-hand side. And so you watch the gauge, you add a little bit of acid, you keep an eye. This takes about an hour in which you do the reaction, the gas is evolved, it travels across into the liquid nitrogen trap and you keep everything under, under control. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So it gets a little bit messy. Some of the black stuff splashes around. But the crucial thing is the next slide collecting the product. And what you see on the right-hand side is that in that flask has appeared a white solid stuck to the walls in the liquid nitrogen. And the key thing now is that you're going to have to separate that crude product because, of course, you know, there will also be a bit of hydrochloric acid. There will also be some water vapor in there. There might be other things. And what you're now going to have to do is a very careful kind of separation. And you'll do this twice. So let's just slide, which is purifying the product. You now transfer the flask, which has the pH 3 in it, the solid, into a slightly warmer bath. So you put it into a bath, which is now at minus 78 degrees. You do that by taking dry ice and acetone. And now what happens is that the phosphine, it melts and then it vaporizes. And so it travels back into the manifold. Hydrochloric acid remain frozen. And they so the phosphine travels through the thing. And what it does is it then condenses into a new flask. And so what you'll be doing is you'll do this a couple of times to make sure that you've really got it very nice and pure. And so by the end of this process, right? Um, in fact, this, this slide is duplicated. Um, we've transferred it. So you do that twice, you get the product. And so we have the next slide and you can see we've got solid first. We let it warm up. That's liquid phosphine. You see it liquefied before your eyes. And then finally, you have an apparently empty flask which is, of course, filled with a phosphine gas. So your phosphine gas is now ready to go. I'm working with a colleague called Steve Price, who may actually be out in the audience, um, and, and it's his experiments, right, these, these astrochemical experiments to understand the chemistry of phosphine um, under, uh, you know, in, in the presence of other molecular ions. And, and, and this stuff is really, really nice, well-behaved, and so on, provided you don't make a mistake. What happens if you make a mistake and you let air in? Well, you get quite a nice, intense white glow in your flask. And what you get is orange goop on the walls. And that's my final slide if you make a mistake. So you've really got to be careful. And this stuff is technical, but my God, it's a lot of fun. Thank you, Andrea. That's, uh, that, that was longer than the normal answer.
as we have, but as 32 different people asked the question, if we divide it up, that was actually too brief. Uh, so that was great. That was really useful. We had so many people asking about this. Um, and we will probably come back to this as well. Um, but now let's get through some of the questions because we've only got about 20 minutes left. Let's get through. Uh, but as I said, a lot of people asked about phosphine. So that was really great to to go through all that. Um, so uh, let's start off with, uh, we've got a battery-based question. So, uh, so I thought if I can ask, I'm going to start yeah. with you on this because I know that's uh, one of your this is from philip philip would like to know uh, i've always wondered and always argued with relatives but never truly investigated the difference between brand batteries and whether they actually last longer than uh budget batteries or are they like paracetamol and it's all the same i missed that last bit there robin I, you got cut off oh right so basically it's it's our uh, the difference between um, the the big name brand batteries yeah. and the kind of budget supermarket batteries are that how different are they really, or is it very much like supermarket paracetamol and all the other forms of paracetamol? Um, being a humble materials chemist, I haven't done a extensive survey of the um, different types of batteries. In terms of cost, you would suspect that just the amount of material in the standard brand you know the um the supermarket batteries probably might have less less of the energy storage materials in there compared to the big brand the the bunny type uh brand so that's my that's my suspicion um i haven't done or read the relevant literature whether there is a significant difference the composition of the materials would be very very similar i think in terms of cost i suspect it's just the amount of the materials are in there uh and the way they're processed to bring the if the supermarket ones are of a lower cost then that that's probably reason but i uh that person will probably still carry on arguing with their parents or grandparents because i'm i can't say a definitive answer on that one what, what is, is the, the most um costly part then of a battery what, what is the thing that would uh you know that with the, the ones that keep those bunnies drumming and drumming and drumming it those is, things it which is, is it's, it's often it is the material so for the lithium-ion batteries of electric vehicles it's the materials themselves uh so for example cobalt in the lithium-ion battery is costly and toxic so they're trying to bring down the amount of cobalt in those lithium-ion batteries um so yeah it's it's the, it's the materials cost often the the actual manufacturing putting the um the batteries together has come down um there are some standard processes um some materials are just more costly than others so one of the areas that we're looking on this is through a big funding agency called the Faraday institution is trying to bring the energy density up and the cost and safety, the cost down and the safety up. So it is materials costs. Brilliant. So that's uh, that's um, it means the argument can continue. So it gives them a reason to continue meeting, which I think yeah. is important. No, Helen, there's no time for it. I'm going to go straight on with another question for you, Helen, uh, because we're going to get through all of them again today, uh, which is when does and this is a big question. When does chemistry become physics and vice versa? Oh, how to start a fight. Look yeah, exactly. Um, so I, there are some people who are of the view that all the interesting bits of chemistry are either physics or biology. And that is, that is an, uh, an opinion that is out there. Um, so there isn't, there obviously aren't clear lines because when you come down to the nuts and bolts of chemistry, a lot of it was things that physicists found out just because if you're dealing with the nature of the atom and how electron fields work and all of that, you use that for chemistry. So I, I'm not going to start a fight here. I don't think I would say that the you could argue that there's a mechanism thing that physics deals with um, the you know it's, it's or let's do it the other way around um, that chemistry deals with the electron how electron clouds interact with molecules uh, and all of that anything that's caused by that becomes more chemistry so that's how atoms basically sit next to each other and behave when they're near each other and all that kind of stuff and the physics is perhaps more a bit more about why that happens but then physics includes yeah. everything else as well so as, i haven't got a really good answer but i am very aware that if you wanted to start a fight in a university common room that would probably be a really good place to start see i do think there's see, something, I do think there's something when we start actually 
placing it on a kind of a, an imagined timeline to say that when the universe starts, it is physics. And then at a point in the universe, chemistry and then biology and when you actually see that as a and that's not in any way to lessen any one of those things i find that very fascinating where you know physicists that i talk to who talk about ideas which i find tremendously intricate they will always say that ultimately physics is very simple and then you get to chemistry and chemistry becomes more complex and then biology of course we might have you know some some biologists will say biology does have a unified theory but despite that, every time you get a, which would be Darwin, you know, theory of natural selection, they, they would consider that to be their unified theory. Then every time you get an answer in biology, though, you go, oh, man, that's a lot more questions. That's made it a lot more confusing. And now that to me is an interesting way of ju just even just thinking of it as the evolution physics. But all the, all um, of these things are about interacting. And so it's like a Venn diagram where they overlap in different places. Yeah. Ultimately, the interesting thing is the human body and the planet and the universe you know all of that you look at those big systems you say what's inside the system and it's just that to look at different bits inside the system that are certain size scales or act over certain time scales you need a certain type of expertise but they all merge together like you know the physics of complex and i'm talking about the earth as a complex system the all of it that that does involve physics and it does involve chemistry and it does involve biology and, and after a while you know it's like even with the ocean there aren't no one really trains as an oceanographer they all start off as math we all start off as mathematicians or physicists or something else so it's just like the scale and the type of your approach that dictates your discipline the only reason people think there has to be a separation is that someone at school thought that was a good idea I mean, there is no reason if I was doing it, I would have, um, you know, the human body and the planet as the two fundamental subjects and, and dig around and inside those. So I don't know. It, what's interesting is you, see, you, you identified there's this legacy from the past that the order of things kind of goes like that, although they all started off as alchemists or biologists. I suppose if you start further back, people are looking at animals. But it's that um, do we have to keep that system? Do we still need chemistry, physics, biology and maths? Or is there a better way of splitting up? The, the perspective that you start teaching from see i don't i don't see, I don't, see it, I don't with, see it with, as splitting up i think it joins it together i think that when i try and imagine in my head that the universe has this point where it is physics and the equation of physics and then it gets to a point of complexity which brings in chemistry and then it gets to a point of complexity somewhere or other currently it only seems to be here but obviously that is only all we know it becomes biology i think that joins them all together rather than turns them into as you're saying the school curriculum thing andrea physics chemistry biology and so on um those are all things which just as where we talk about physical chemistry, organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry. These are divisions which are really designed because you can't teach all of it in one go. You've got to kind of fragment it somehow to be able to kind of package it up. And so one of the really interesting things is that because we end up with this kind of chemist mindset or physicist mindset or, 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 or whatever, it's always at the interfaces between them that really interesting things happen. And I think no one should underestimate how important mathematical biology and biological physics, you know, are at the moment. And, you know, because we come out of a school thing, you know, we don't imagine that maths really impinges on biology. Oh my God. You know, and similarly in chemistry, right? Sort of similar things kind of apply. I think that's an interesting bit. Again, I think that's an interesting bit. Again, it's something I suppose we need to get more into the public, which is when we've done some of the shows about COVID-19 and people said, why have you got mathematical modelers on? What's maths got to do with anything that's, you know, and all of those things are seem to be gut reactions. I think, again, partly based on a, a, a curriculum which doesn't necessarily connect in the, in the way that, that it should. Um, this I'm going to ask you this question, Andrea, because I think it's meant uh -oh. for you. I went to last year's Nine Lessons show, as I've done every year, and each time before Andrea is on, Robin tells some story about Andrea backstage, and I never know if it's just part of a joke or real. So last year, did he really knock over a massive jar of sulfuric acid before going on stage? And I'm going to add to that, can you tell us, as long as it remains happy and no one dies, your worst clumsy error dealing with noxious Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So, so I mean, what happened um, last year was that uh, I, 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 I was going to do a, a demonstration involving hydrogen, and I was going to make the hydrogen using a very ancient uh, sort of 19th century piece of apparatus called the Kipps apparatus that I, 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 I knew I owned, but it had disappeared. And in fact, I found a circle 
in the dust on a filing cabinet where it had been and someone had borrowed it. So I got in touch with a friend who's, who's, who makes apparatus. And I said, hey, have you got one? Can I buy one? And he said, I'll send it to you. So he couriered something the day before um, the, the nine lessons. And um, so, you know, I got the thing, you know, I set it all up and so on. And at the bottom, there is a stopper which fits into it. And I put a clip on to hold it. What I hadn't spotted was the fact that the clip was of the, the stopper and, the, and the, 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 the joint were actually of a different size from the standard ones. And so the clip didn't fit properly. So backstage, I got the whole thing set up and I started letting in some of the sulfuric acid. And um, well, suddenly, just before we were due to go on stage, sure enough, we heard a blink, glug, 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 glug. And the sulfuric acid started pouring all over the floor and onto my shoes. Um, and uh, yes, indeed, it did make a few holes in my shoes. It wasn't that concentrated, but my shoes were quite flimsy. Um, and um, yeah, so that was, uh, on the one hand, highly embarrassing. But on the other hand, it did give a certain manic energy to the whole enterprise, which I think quite a lot of people in the audience quite appreciated that evening. <laughs> well, you'll see that, you know, and Andrea's, that, face, you know and Andrea's face has a kind of Stan Laurel shape to it. Mine has a reasonable <laughs> Oliver Hardy shape. So generally at the end of every experiment, it's just me. So <laughs> um, now, uh, so what is the worst one that you've had? I, I'm trying to think that in terms of our, our experience uh, generally it's been you know there was that bin that we blew up at the uh birmingham nec but no one knew about that so that was fine um well pretty tells you being genuinely worried while melting a trumpet uh, yes yes we did we did uh we did do a uh, uh we, we did film the uh burning and melting of a of a trumpet which we did in a fume hood and the fume hood uh, well the the trumpet did catch fire rather spectacularly after a while and there was a brief moment of of real fear um, before we got the fire extinguisher onto it and put it out. Um, so yes, there was that. There, there have been a few others that should save those for a more a, a day when we can sort of relax in the pub and kind of exchange. A, a day where you're not at the house. A day you where you're not the, at the house and you don't have those terribly, you know, those those staunch draconian domestic rules that don't allow you to set fire to the living room. Um, <laughs> This question from James M. This is another battery-based uh, question, right. which I hope is okay. This is, um, could lithium-ion batteries be used in large farms to power cities and recharge them via solar? And what would the environmental impact be of actually manufacturing that amount of batteries? So, good question, or two questions. Uh, first one um, is a yes. In fact, um, energy storage for renewables, so when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining for solar, um, is is critical. Um, at the moment, it's largely dominated by pumped hydro, but quite a few companies, and not surprisingly, um, Musk and others, are looking into large-scale energy storage using lithium-ion batteries, but also, uh, for your viewer, uh, sodium-ion batteries. Uh, sodium is more abundant than lithium, so in essence, it's much, much lower cost than lithium. It's got a lower energy density. I can store less energy in a sodium ion battery, but for renewables on a big farm, size isn't as critical. So you could use sodium ion batteries instead of lithium ion. But in both cases, yes, they are being developed. On the second point, there's big projects here and Europe and in the US on recycling. The problem with lithium ion batteries is that because they're multi-component, trying to extract the different components, the important components, can be sometimes more costly than just, unfortunately, just um, getting rid of them. Uh, so there are big research efforts to try and um, optimise recycling. I, didn't, I discovered recently that we recycle 98% of lead-acid batteries, quite a high percentage of lead-acid. We need to get that, that kind of level eventually when electric cars become big, you know, more volume to uh, recycle it. But for local any grid storage, for that local farm of wind farm or solar farms, recycling will be less critical because you want those, those energy storage farms to last longer. 
maybe 10, 20 years. So the, the demands on there is lifetime rather than energy storage. I have been actually to uh, car vacuum plants where they are cold process, so no smelting okay. anything, but it, it works. So, so it, it, uh, people are coming along where they, okay. they are doing that kind of thing and they're doing it with car batteries now. Um, but also you can use a car battery obviously several times for different things before yes. you have to recycle it. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that recycling of lithium batteries, although it's not common, you know, you, you tell you that you can't do it, you know, in the supermarket or whatever. But in practice, uh, recycling of lithium batteries has really come on a hell of a lot in the last yeah. five years. And so it's becoming big, big business. And in a way, the batteries are partly to, um, to, to kind of store the, the, the energy. But they, they play an incredibly important role with renewables in, in stabilizing the grid. Yeah. And yeah. so there's been there's been this uh, this this remarkable project, which you will remember, Elon Musk made this bet in Australia that he could provide a huge storage battery uh, within 100 days or they would get their money back. And Musk did deliver. Um, and it has really transformed things because one of the things is that it is far, far faster and more responsive than any technology in being able to yeah. make up for sudden surges in demand or sudden drops in production. And so it's really been a tre tremendous success. And that stuff is being rolled out elsewhere, including the UK. Yeah. But also batteries aren't the only solution to that problem. Hydrogen is, you know, there are there are big uh, projects now on the northeast of England where um, that, you know, stuff's coming in straight from wind farms whenever there's a spike where they would normally turn off, turn it off, basically, because the grid can't cope. It goes into hydrogen storage. And that is a very good long term storage uh, suitable for bigger vehicles. You know, it's a very flexible thing. And, and that so think all of these things, they are happening. And batteries, yeah. although they're really important, they aren't the only solution. Yeah, I, well, I've used a the kind of energy energy supplies a pie chart there's as as currently different parts of different wedges of that pie or cake will be different types of technology and hydrogen lithium uh we've got biomass we've got nuclear will be part of that as well so there'll be different aspects depending on i suppose diff different types of requirements required um but andrew is right that smart grids in the future, will use um, the batteries or hydrogen as load leveling. Uh, load leveling to makes it much more efficient. Our the supply of energy in the UK and and worldwide. And I think right, I mean, gonna, yeah, this, this we move on. We're going to move on yeah. now, uh, uh, just because we've only got we've got ten questions left and we've got uh, nine minutes to go. Um, so uh, this is from Kaylee, who's age ten, uh, who would like to know: Could we find a new element on another planet that would fit in the middle of the periodic table, or would it have to go at the bottom? So this is an interesting thing about Mendeleev and the, and the, the as, as the, the periodic table kind of came yeah. together. So so Andrea, what do you? Uh, what what would we know about uh, if we found something else, a new element? What would we? Well, I think that the only elements that remain to be discovered are the ones down. And, and the reason is because of the structure of the nucleus. And the nucleus uh, contains uh, particles called protons. And what we know is that as you go from hydrogen through to uranium, Hydrogen has one proton, and helium has two, and lithium has three, and beryllium has four, and there are no gaps. And what that means is that there is not going to be any element between hydrogen and organesson, which is the last one that was discovered, that has been discovered, that is confirmed, that is agreed. Yeah. But beyond that, wow, there's still options. And what I suggest you do is very soon, you should get your parents to get you a book called Itch. And Itch is the story of a boy who discovers element number 126. It's quite good. It's quite fun. And I understand there's going to be an opera based on it, too. That's great. That's that's great. That's by Simon Mayo, and that is uh, who basically started writing a book about science because one day he found out he didn't know what the four forces of the universe were. I think his son, who was about nine or ten, said, "Dad, what are they?" And he thought, "I don't even know what they are, so I need to learn." And I might then use a book. Yeah, it's a great way of 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 of, uh, of turning that into something—a journey of discovery. Um, this from Karen Lawrence has lots of different questions. I'm just going to throw this one at you. She would like to know why is chemistry so fiendishly anomalous? Now, who would like to pick up on that? 
Andrea, go on then. You go first. Uh, you go, everyone else can join in. Go on. Well, I suppose I want to know what she meant by anomalous then. Well, that's exactly what I want to know as well. So I was wondering if you have had more people uh, people saying to you that chemistry appears to be an, uh, an anomalous discipline. Andrea? I mean, you know, I think anomalous is, is, a, is a very slippery word. Um, but one of the things about, about chemistry is that it has a very strange paradox to it. And that is that on the one hand, it seems to be about very familiar things. But on the other hand, it's unbelievably abstract and the rules underpinning it seem very, very alien. And it takes, you know, a lot of work to start to get to kind of really embed that and feel them deep down. And I think that's what she means by a non is that, you know, you look at the periodic table and you have no idea why things are structured that way. And actually getting to that is, com is complicated in a way that perhaps some of the laws of motion or, or those sorts of things maybe are less so. But you can't see the mechanism, right? When you have a dog, you go, that's a dog. That's definitely biology. Definitely it's, biology. Got, it's got some lungs and it's got feet and it's got ears. And those are definite biology. And I can see how they work, you know, at least on the surface. And when it's physics, you go, okay, sunlight, it's passing through a window. I can kind of see what's going on. But with chemistry, you the mechanism is absolutely invisible. But I and that's why I think people utterly, utterly alien and mysterious. Yeah. I mean, what is the mechanism under dog? dog? But the point I'm is you can see some of the mechanism. You can, can see I say that, what it is. Can I say that chemistry? I don't think chemistry. Is chemistry I don't think chemistry is anomalous. Then yes, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna say I disagree with that. That proposal that it isn't anomalous. That it's, it's, it's got a lot of. You brought up the periodic table. Well, I like the periodic table. It's it is structured. It's a bit of structure there. Um, I've just shown you a lovely crystalline model. That's not not anomalous. That's nice and regular. You you get salt anywhere in the world, and it would look like this. Right. Okay, well, I hope that's, that's, I hope hope that's, that's brought some, some satisfaction to you, uh, Karen. Uh, this is now, this is a question. Someone says that you were tweeting several about uh, a lemon battery and the yes. world record the other day. Yes. And uh, LW really, uh, the question is, a what now? So, uh, if you could explain the lemon battery. So in, in a minute, I'll explain. So, during my Royal Institution Christmas lectures, the last one, last of the three, was on energy storage. And I showed the audience. Um, how a battery works and a school experiment that Andrea knows is using a lemon. I stuck in a copper nail and a magnesium strip, connected it up and we generated 1.4 volts. I told the institution, that's fairly dull. Can we go large? Can we go very large? And so I got my research group to buy 1,008 lemons. They cut them in half to get 2016 lemon slices. So that was true cutting edge technology, boom, boom. And they put them onto some IKEA shelves. We got all the leads. We got the Guinness World Rep in, and we generated nearly 1,300 volts. Um, so it's a world record in terms of the highest voltage from uh, 11 battery. The certificate is behind me somewhere over there. Uh, and uh, I'm in the, yeah, the Guinness Book of World Records for the highest voltage for 11 battery. and we recycle those lemons afterwards by lots of gin and tonics. Right. So, yeah, on pancake day, they generally have syrup instead of uh, the lemons. Yes. When, when, when Alessandro Volta first discovered that you could make lemon batteries, he didn't use lemons, but, but anyway, he dipped copper and, and, and another metal into, into a glass. Um, the way in which he tested the voltage was actually by taking the two wires and first touching them both to his tongue. Um, he then followed that up and, and, and he, because he could taste something and he stuck one wire onto his tongue and the other one in his ear. And then he heard an amazing noise as well as having his tongue twitch. Then he connected his tongue and his eyeball and he saw a flash. So my question to you is, did you do the first one and connect up to the 13 kilovolts? Uh, definitely, not. Uh, definitely not. Definitely not. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Well, as, as, as we've, we've now talked about the discovery of ECT therapy, uh, we <laughs> the next question is, is a lithium-involved question, which is Susie would like to know, uh, how excited should we be about discoveries of lithium in Cornwall? 
Helen? No, there's, there's been there's been lithium in Cornwall for a long time. And so the thing <laughs> and, about mines that people tend to forget is that Cornwall has loads of mine, you know, tin and all kinds of interesting things. Yeah. And the thing about mines isn't normally the discovering them. It's whether the price of the thing that you're getting out of the ground is worth the effort of getting it out of the ground in that place. And so, and that's there are plenty of deposits that we're not short for most uh, elements of of knowing where they are. It's just a case of whether the price of it is enough to to get it out of the ground. And so, there's been a lot of talk of artisan mines, which is a wonderful phrase. Um, <laughs> and you know, it it's a local industry for Cornwall. And if the price of some of these things hits the right point, it either becomes inaccessible elsewhere, and so the price goes up, or they find new methods of mining it, so the price in Cornwall goes down. Then the mines may well open up again. So so it's not really a discovery. The geology of Cornwall has been very well known for a very long time. It's just, um, you know, that maybe they found a bit that's maybe a bit richer, so a bit richer in the deposits, so that it would bring the price down. But it's it's all about whether it's worth, worth getting it out of the ground. And actually, at Clearwell Caves, the ochre that I just uh, they have had an, an, a mine there specifically for artists for something like 200 years and when I went visited and, and got those samples they actually said they were close to the end of the line because people weren't prepared to pay for it anymore after over, more than 100 years and the the ochre is still there it's just that you know health and safety regulations come in and make it more expensive and, and so it makes it harder for small scale production facilities to work but you know maybe in Cornwall there'll be lithium mines again. Um, we're nearly out of time, so I'll just uh, remind just, everyone. Uh, if you, remind everyone if you if you are able to support us for our Patreon, uh, it really does make a huge difference, especially at the moment. Uh, we we're trying to make as much stuff uh, as, as possible, have as many people with all manner of different levels of, of of expertise and and passions on these shows, and we have had uh, you know well over a million people um, watching the stuff that we do, and uh, we have produced hundreds of hours of stuff during lockdown, and uh, we do kind of need, though we we try and make all of it free. Uh, we aren't able to make everything free and we, we're really trying as hard as possible to keep this going uh, so if you're able to support us for our Patreon or at the least just pop something in the tip jar that's fantastic if you're not I hope you keep enjoying what we're doing um, this is I have to ask this from Johnny Dobbo because I have no idea what this means uh, this is one of the lovely things so many questions I, I have no idea what they mean uh, Johnny would like to know retrosynthesis why so retrosynthesis who's going to go for that it has to be Andrea Come on. Right. This is why. So, so one of the things is that we've, uh, you know, we keep finding really interesting, complicated uh, biological molecules, mostly molecules from nature. So what you do is you find some tree in the forest, right, and and, and you go and squeeze it because uh, somebody tells you that 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 you know it will cure a certain disease. And this is often the process by which drugs are are kind of brought eventually to market, is that you have some natural product out there. Now, the thing about these natural products is that they're often very, very complex. And so there's a real challenge for chemists to try and build that from scratch rather than following the biological pathway. So how could you do that? How could you develop a root which starts from almost the elements or at least common things that you can buy from a chemical supplier and then make this really weird molecule, I don't know, bryostatin or, or ampicillin or I don't know what, you know, something like that. Retrosynthesis is a kind of uh, mental game that organic chemists play in which what they do is they essentially deconstruct a molecule. They pull it apart, essentially saying, if I take it apart here, I can put that back together again using this chemical reaction, this step. So, okay, we'll take that apart there. Now let's remove this fragment. And so what you do is you deconstruct the molecule into eventually simple building blocks that you can buy off the shelf. And then what you do, now you're ready to attempt the complete synthesis of this molecule. And now you attempt to reassemble the whole thing. And, and through this, this, this kind of mind game, which doesn't really have a commercial application, What's come is an extraordinary knowledge of the rules that govern organic chemistry, the way in which you can assemble molecules. So it's fascinating. It's really hard. And it's one of the things that, that you know, a un chemistry undergraduate will have to go through in order to get through advanced organic chemistry. 
Thank you so much. Thank you all very much. We, I'm sorry for the questions that we didn't have time for. We uh, didn't have time for. Uh, some of them we will come back to because uh, some of them will remain relevant in various other shows. Uh, and uh, I would just mention again, we have the the interview with Paul Nurse. Uh, that's going to be up next week, talking about his book, What Is Life? And we talked about a lot of different things as well. And it was, a, it, I mean, the, the stuff that we know about yeast and the fact that uh, basically – 1.5 billion years of uh, that that that's how long certain ideas in life we can see the continuation of what goes on within us and what goes on within yeast and that is a really incredible and beautiful story of 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 connectivity we're also doing another covid-19 uh special on wednesday we're going to try and do some more stuff on covid-19 we're going to try and do some more uh brief things uh which will just be explanations of why uh scientists and medical people believe that masks do have some use why they believe this is not something that was manufactured in a laboratory, uh, why they believe this really uh, does exist, that COVID-19 is it. We're just going to deal with some of those kind of things as well. And we're going to predominantly deal with genetics on Wednesday, but we do want to have answers that are useful for you sometimes when you're involved in arguments online etc of just looking at the evidence and also talking to some of the doctors and nurses and people who are on the front line and dealing with these things as well for them to explain why sometimes something which can seem very disconnected to those who have not in any way been affected by it why some of these things why i know some people feel that there's there's overreactions etc so i think that's why it's very important as well to talk to the doctors and nurses and those people dealing with that now so we're going to try and do that uh over the next couple of weeks um so as i said covid19 we're going to do that on wednesday i'm not sure what next week's uh theme is going to be on the sunday science q a but we'll be back at uh 3 p.m with that there's more book shambles coming up as well next week thanks very much for watching thank you to our producer trent burton uh who is in agony with uh his lower back because he's been in the same chair now for six months just producing all of these shows and eventually <laughs> it has uh led to all manner of lumbar complications uh have a lovely rest of the weekend, and we hope to see you during the week. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmicshambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmicshambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmicshambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. <laughs>